0: Welcome back to another episode of the B2B Founder Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Trainer. Today, JC Garrett joins the show to talk about tech and B2B startups, as well as the opportunities he is seeing in the space. Through Farshore Partners, he has helped develop, launch, and scale over 250 growth startups, which have gone on to raise over a billion dollars in financing. JC is an advocate for defining the role of technology in any venture. Technology is a central component we see in startups nowadays, but the part technology plays in the business is an area that deserves much deeper focus. In today's episode, we have two main themes. First, JC talks about the importance of defining the role of technology in your startup or any startup, whether it's tech-centric or tech-enabled. We actually get into the differences, and you should pay attention. Second, we discuss the opportunities that come up during the difficult times and why now is the right time to start a B2B business. As a favor, if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe with your favorite platform of choice. I would greatly appreciate it. Now, on to the interview. Good morning, JC. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so
1: much for having me, Brett. Pleasure to be
0: here. Oh, no, it's my pleasure. Definitely been looking forward to this episode. Uh, you, you and I were talking off a little bit, really the first time on the podcast I've had somebody come on to talk about tech and the role in B2B and you know your take on it being in it for a little bit of time now when we get into how long. But before we dive in, why don't you give the audience a little bit of your, your background and, and what you're working on today?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'll try to give a a Reader's Digest version, not the the long-winded version. So I kind of focus on entrepreneurship, you know, most of the time that I spend professionally right now in some shape, form, or fashion is in working with entrepreneurs and startups, you know, really ranging all stages from kind of your pre-seed ideation stage into that validation or kind of post-revenue stage all the way into there, that growth or acquisition or exit stage. Just focusing on being a mentor, being a coach, being an advisor. My background, just really quickly, is I went and got an MBA from Pepperdine University after working in nonprofit management for a couple of years because I'm a capitalist. And while I was there, I thought I was going to be a management consultant, but ended up taking a business plan writing class almost by accident. Fell in love with entrepreneurship, actually had an opportunity through that class to start advising and consulting an entrepreneur on how to go out and fundraise. And so helping them create a pitch deck and a business plan how to target the right angel, the right VCs to go out and capitalize their venture, launch their venture and commercialize it and just fell in love with it. And so while I was in business school and for a period after that really started a trajectory for me, consulting and coaching entrepreneurs, helping them go out and do all the fundamental things they needed to launch their venture. And what was interesting in doing that over a couple dozen different startups, ranging from an organic fish farm in the Philippines to kind of XYZ, digital company is I noticed that technology was this really recurring theme. In some cases, technology was kind of the central component of the business they were launching. And in other cases, they were using technology to scale operations and grow. I had no technology background whatsoever, still am not a coder to this day. But I knew in order to be a more well-rounded mentor and consultant, I needed to learn about technology. So I left business school, graduated business school, and set out to become a technologist as well. Not a coder, but really learning how to balance business and technology strategy. That started with me joining a B2B startup back in Chicago here where I'm at now, running operations and strategy and sales. And then I met my now business partner, Nick, and together we have launched and been growing our two companies, Farshore and Dashfire ever since then. And just really quickly, Farshore is a technology services agency We specialize in working with enterprises at all stages, but primarily startups. We've helped launch about 250 new ventures since we've been doing this. They've raised over a billion dollars in venture capital financing, graduated from all the top accelerators like Techstars, Y Combinator, 500 Startups. And basically, we help them invest in software and technology, industry agnostic, sector agnostic, usually pre or post seed. So kind of that early stage intersection and then continue to work with them. Got a couple hundred full-time folks who uh, help on mobile tech, web tech, graphic design, software architecture, digital marketing. And then our sister company, Dashfire, was basically born out of our background in working with startups, mentoring them, coaching them, and actually investing in them. So Dashfire is our investment and our advisory arm, where certain startups that we work with on the Farshore side will participate as advisors and investors. So most of our time is focused on those two things right now.
0: I can't imagine to have a whole lot of time for anything else outside of that, but and that's really one of the biggest reasons I want to have you on the on the show is because you can talk about it from both sides. Uh, you know, from the tech and the value and the importance, uh, obviously the number of companies that you've worked with, but also on the investment side. So I want to kind of table the investment side. We'll get that in kind of part two, and maybe drill into the the tech side because I too. I became a big advocate of technology, not a coder as well, but I get it from a business case or a use case, and I think a lot of times many companies forget about that, right, or the founders. So maybe talk into that a little, because I think you you mentioned two sides: one, as you're building your offering, right, is it tech-based? Let's start there. So with the startups you work with, and let's use the last two or three years, because I think five years, you know, we can get into how the, the industry's changed, but. What is your kind of recommendation? I'm a founder, ab 2 b founder, I'm thinking about starting a company. Do you lead with tech? Do you lead with services? What's, what's kind of your recommendation to, to folks thinking about it or have already in it now, maybe needing to pivot?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So again, my approach to technology is, is different from the standpoint that I am not a technology purist, you know, kind of laugh saying I'm a technologist who largely convinces people to downplay the role that technology plays in their business. Not because I don't think technology is important or I don't think it's an opportunity to to do some really great things, but because I think it starts with correctly defining the role that technology plays in your business. So whether you are kind of a pre-launch ideation stage, you know, sort of startup venture, or you're in that validation or growth mode, you need to constantly be revisiting the topic of what role technology plays in your venture right now or how i summarize it is how tech centric or how tech enabled a particular piece of technology or technology overall is for your venture and to me in all seriousness not to encourage anybody to turn off the podcast after this but if there's one thing that i tend to evangelize like if there's one thing that i tell people of all of the ramblings that i say like this is the thing to listen to most defining whether you are a tech centric or you are a tech enabled venture is a critical definition to get right and it's something that you're constantly going to have to revisit so the answer to that question am i tech-centric or tech-enabled may be one answer at the beginning of your venture versus other cycles of your venture so but it does start with that and so basically at at a high level tech centricity is when you are trying to generate enterprise value which should be the goal of every startup right beyond any social mission or anything like that we are all trying to generate enterprise value for ourselves as investors and for other investors in the cap table and for other stakeholders. So in wanting to grow enterprise value, tech centricity means that the enterprise value that you're growing or you're appreciating is typically the product itself. It is the technology that you're investing in. That will typically drive you down one strategic product development pathway that will guide you more towards one implementation and commercialization solution versus the alternative being tech enabled. And tech enabled is where the technology that you're building is not representative or directly relating to your enterprise value. It's a tool that you use to go out and acquire that enterprise value or scale that enterprise value. So, you know, think of a company like Microsoft, who's developing a solution like Microsoft Excel, highly tech centric product, that is the enterprise value that they're offering. And then you think of like a Shopify or a Magento or one of these e-commerce platforms, you know, you're not using or investing in that to actually be the enterprise value of your venture. You're investing in that to acquire the enterprise value or deliver the enterprise value of your venture. So that's the critical starting point that I recommend all startups look at now and at any sequence that they're in in the future is, am I tech-centric or am I tech-enabled? And how does that impact my, my implementation strategy?
0: Yeah, that's such great advice and you know, well-articulated. <laughs> I tend to oversimplify that quite a bit of you know, the tech. I think you know, I'd love to get your perspective. Do you think there's a right or wrong? Is there a 1A or 1B? Or is it really the, the value that you're going to provide to the end customers or the problem you're solving for those end customers is, is the path that you should be looking for? And I'm just curious from your your vantage point, because I think with the tech-centric, the way tech is evolving and how quickly it is to copy, if you don't have something outside of that, you're going to run into some trouble. But you're in the heart and the fire of this, so educate me. What What's your thoughts between the two? And you know, what's, what's your recommendation to entrepreneurs?
1: Yeah, it's a fascinating question, Brett. So I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth for a moment, but I'll try to connect the dots here in a minute. It is both right and wrong and absolutely not right and wrong. And so what I mean by that is that there is not one preferred position or the other, right? Right. Tech-centricity in and of itself offers advantages and disadvantages. Tech enablement offers advantages and disadvantages. So it's not so much that, you know, like in the B2B space especially, that you must be more tech-centric or that you should seek tech-centricity or avoid tech-centricity. It's really more about understanding your dynamic position in the marketplace relative to competitors and relative to the value that you're adding. Alternatively, where it is important is, is having in having clarity, like you must define it. Now, it is more of a scale rather than kind of a binary, you are tech centric and you are tech enabled. You can actually do an evaluation and, we'll, and I'll do this with certain entrepreneurs that we're working with or that I'm mentoring, where you can go on a feature to feature basis or kind of value proposition to value proposition basis and say, is this piece of what I'm offering more tech centric or more tech enabled? And that's really for more kind of progressed, you know, kind of later stage down cycle startups that are in validation or growth mode, where it's not as easy to kind of paint with that broad brush of tech centricity, tech enablement, and you kind of have to go feature to feature. So there I will say this, a lot of entrepreneurs that I talk to, they are compelled sometimes just themselves maybe being less technical founders or non-technical founders, even if they're technical, maybe they feel compelled to want to be more tech-centric than they are. What I can tell you with absolute certainty is, is that the power starts with having that definition in place, but tech-enabled ventures are just as successful, just as scalable, and just as fundable as tech-centric businesses. Generally speaking, if there's an opportunity to internalize tech and create some moat and some barrier, that's great but don't feel compelled or forced to seek that tech centricity. Most of the ventures that we've worked with successfully as investors, as service providers, partners, et cetera, have been more on the tech enabled side or more of their architecture is tech enabled. So it is on the one hand, absolutely not important to be one or the other, but it is important to know which of the other you are.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. And again, I, there is no black or white. It it, is kind of the sliding scale and, I do think, you know, some of my advice to, to founders is if, is to blend it, right? I mean, if you've got a great new technology offering, that's different, and, but to defend it, you're going to have to build services around that or some other way. So I think to your point, and I'll be much, much less articulate about it, is, you know, the, I think it's a, to balance and it's either one, you're going to lean one side or the other. So you've come up with the new technology. How is it you're going to defend that with other services or other offerings, and then the flip side, if you're supporting a technology, right, then you still need to have that play the, I don't want to say the central role. And it, just understand that the value to, you know, to your point, I think you're spot on is there is no one right answer and two, don't go to the either extreme. Find that, that happy medium. Is that a fair way to summarize it? 100 percent yeah and again i find this to be especially true
1: with non or less technical founders and i get it i have tried to for my entire professional career really overcomplicate technology technology is is obviously complex but brett you hit the nail on the head it is and and this is just the truth of it from someone deeply entrenched in the industry it is becoming more and more skilled labor it's highly commoditized and that's okay again it doesn't mean that technology is not a tool it's not an asset It just means that when you are less familiar with how to hold a hammer, you probably put the hammer on a certain pedestal, but to a carpenter who's using it every day, they have a different interpretation of what that tool is. So especially people who aren't as compelled or familiar with technology, they tend to wanna overemphasize. Like when you talk about like overdeveloping an MVP, a minimum viable product, it's the less technical founders or the non-technical founders who tend to overdevelop, which you would think overdevelop from the standpoint of like adding too many features and trying to do too much, and you would think it would be somebody with a technology background because, again, they have this experience. They know what it can do. But no, it's it's when people feel like they're distant from it that they feel compelled to move towards it. Don't force yourself into becoming something you're not. Finding that happy medium and then constantly revisiting what that medium is and recalibrating is critical because that role technology plays will and should change at various cycles of your venture.
0: Yeah, no, it's such good advice. And uh, you know, another piece I always offer to super technical founders is, you know, find somebody that understands the business case and the use case from the buyer's perspective, because, you know, too often these guys are really smart. They know the technology inside and out, but nobody cares about the features and the benefits, right? It comes back to what problem are you solving for me? And, you know, I may be interested in how you do it if it's different and it's going to be less expensive than somebody else is doing it. But don't lead with it. Don't lead with the tech. You know, like a lot of AI and ML companies right now will lead with that. But again, the, the customer doesn't necessarily care. Maybe some super techie buyer would, but the 98% of your audience that you're selling to, they just want to know how you're going to solve that problem. Right? So again, that's my non-technical <laughs> advisory services to the, to those folks who are technical is find somebody that understands that the business case. You're
1: 100% spot on. I mean, it's so funny, especially with your audience in this B2B world, Brett. It boils down to buying centers. It boils down to identifying that decisioning pathway for buying something. And so many entrepreneurs tend to focus on product efficacy right out of the gate. They, they want to efficate their solution. They They want to say... This is why this is so great and it's so powerful. Look at all of these bells and whistles. But in truth, what generates the starting of the selling process in the buying center is market efficacy. It's understanding their problem and their dynamic situation first, and then kind of working your way backwards towards your solution. So especially true for, for the B2B world, it is very much about not focusing on making it a product first discussion, but making it a solutions first discussion. I mean, you know, you talked earlier about you know, defense and how technology can be defense. But we've seen time and time again, especially in the B2B space, the best defense is distance. You know, look at some of these legacy technologies that are out there right now that have been in place forever and ever and ever. and, And they are at these B2B institutions, these large scale Fortune 100 enterprises. Why? Primarily because the legacy, the sunk cost that's gone into them just makes it a compelling case to not want to switch over, right? And so it really has nothing to do. There are, you know, uh, I'm not going to say anything specific, whatever, but there are a lot of technologies out there, CRMs, ERPs, and all of that, that are in place still to this day by virtue of the fact that they're just so initiated into the organization that unwinding them would be challenging. There are tons of superior, newer products that have come to market that have more tech 2.0, tech 3.0 kind of best practices applied. Those older legacy technologies don't but that distance they've created by kind of infiltrating the organization over these years has proven to be the best defense. So before product, before feature, before anything else, it's about getting in and understanding what their problems are and creating that market efficacy. Product efficacy has to be very, very high before it could overcome some of those other components. So, again, best defense is distance, particularly in the B2B software space.
0: Yeah, and that's good. I don't want to call it a segue because I'd love to get your perspective on this. And this is why I wish I had a whiteboard and we have a full video on this podcast. But if you look at kind of the, the history of the B2B space, and I'm talking from the established players. So, if I'm a B2B founder selling into that space, these are my potential customers, enterprise, especially, but even to mid market if you looked at the uh, the rise of technology being introduced into these b2b companies to help them do their jobs better right you know it's at a 45 degree angle if not better how quickly technology is accelerating but if you look at the adoption curve of these b2b companies it's almost flat it's going up a little bit to your point though if you've been around in crms everybody knows you need to have a crm but if you look at you know the marktax and the sales tax and sales ops, all of them there's so much technology, so much opportunity, but yet most of these organizations are so slow at adopting. You know, where, where do you think we're at right now with pandemic changing, right, the way we're doing business, where that's going? I, one, I'd love to get your perspective on, you know, where tech is and where, not enabling what was the word I was looking for, utilization is, is that going to start to change? And how, if I'm a, a founder, do I think about that when trying to sell into this space? Does that makes sense?
1: Yeah, it does. I think it's absolutely an appropriate topic. So in general, I would say the trend up until 2020 or COVID 2020, like, you know, pre-COVID 2020, the trend that you're talking about is absolutely correct, is that, you know, highly prolific technologies, and there was some acceleration of adoption, but the truth of the matter is, is that COVID has proven to be another one of those Darwinistic moments for society, for the economy, and especially for large enterprises. Like, at the end of the day, again, in my background, put aside tech. You want to sell into B two B mid market, larger market doesn't matter what the cap is. Is businesses that are in a state of flux, or the greater the degree of the state of flux that they are in, the more they are looking for solutions, and the more they are open to new solutions. And so, COVID, much like September eleventh, much like the two thousand eight financial crisis, and actually. I would say it's kind of an intersection of those two things in terms of impact or a compounding of those two things as far as effect, is proving to be the time where more enterprises are looking for answers and looking for solutions. And I'll tell you this, I think the permanence, just like with those two events before, the permanence of what these solutions or what this moment has done to their decisioning process, I think that will be more noticeable than even the changes they've adopted so far. So let me try to restate that with a little bit of clarity. I think that of all of the changes that we've seen so far, like the actual line item changes of new tech being adopted, telehealth adoption, things like that. I think that pales in comparison to the impact that this moment that COVID is having on the decisioning framework for these companies of what to do, because they are redefining kind of what an exigent moment of flux can look like and how quickly it can impact them. And so business managers and leaders at these organizations are looking for a whole new rubric to decide how to respond to these moments. And, and there's going to be plenty more. I mean, you know, we're, depending on when this podcast launched, you know, we're on the eve of the 2020 presidential election. You know, everybody stay safe, whatever's going on, I guess. But, you know, it's, it's one of those things where there's going to be a sequence of moments and events that are going to continue and. Covid had kind of primed the pump, I think, for people changing how they're how they're approaching, uh, you know, taking on these new technologies and what these technologies mean. And, and I mean, even down to stakeholder analysis. I heard something highly prolific from one of my employees, which I mean, it was amazing. They're so young. They said, "Companies on the other side of Covid, enterprises." are going to be evaluated by how they treat their employees. The purchasing decision for your customers, for your customers' customers, they are going to look at how they treated and you treated your employees through this. I mean, that's a whole new paradigm shift. And so you start to think about these things and how they start to impact the technology that you're implementing. It's it's a really fascinating muddled you know, sort of mess. But again, the key is, is that it's it's been a moment that has changed things significantly, not the least of which is the way that the decisions are going to be made moving forward versus just any singular decision that's been made so far.
0: Yeah. So much value in what you said. And there's probably 10 different directions we can take it. But the one I I do want to comment is, you know, Darwinistic moments. That that's awesome. I'm gonna steal it. I'll give you full credit. But I mean, I think there's- you're absolutely right. We're at that point there either companies are going to adopt and pivot or they're going to die to be, you know, overly dramatic. But it's, you know, we've seen it if some of these big B2B legacy companies, right, if they all of a sudden have to move to a digital model, you know, they're nowhere near set up to be able to adopt and and do that. And, you know, tying that back to the employee is so true. I had Number of folks that are starting to you know we talk about customer experience to be a differentiator, but you can't really get to customer experience unless you get the employee experience, the employee engagement, which is again backed, completely countered a lot of legacy B2B companies, which which again is going to create a, a lot of opportunities within the space. And I want to pivot there in a second, but one more question on the technology because I've always been kind of a process guy at heart, and I think too often. People selling technology and people buying technology look at it as a silver bullet, when in fact, man, I, I encourage anybody that's that's selling tech, have a process solution to go with it. If you don't do it yourself, find somebody to partner that can help these companies change their processes because you may have the greatest, you know, that can help with that technology adoption curve. You can do all these things, but if they can't adapt their internal processes to it, you're going to be set up for failure. So. Before we move to why we think this probably is the greatest time to, to start a business, let's maybe tie off on the execution piece with, I'd love to get your perspective on, on the process piece, both buyer and seller.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. It's something that I know for for Farshore and Dash Fire, but also for the companies we work with, we institute. What I would say is this, is that there are, in my experience, three stages of sales. And, and the more progressive you get down these stages, the more I think we align towards that, that disruptability that you're talking about. So you have direct sales, you know, which is essentially somebody is very hyper aware of what they're looking for, the, the, the value that they need, even the solution itself, the problem they solve, and they're looking for a direct purchase. You know, somebody goes into a restaurant and they're hungry for a cheeseburger. You sell cheeseburgers and they buy a cheeseburger. Great. The second is consultative sales. It's probably what we're all most familiar with. That's where somebody has a problem, but they don't have a clarified need yet to what that problem is. And so you have a series of tools, solutions, services, and they want you to contextualize your solution with that specific problem, right? Highly consultative. Again, you go into a restaurant, you say, Hey, I'm hungry. What's good? And then maybe the waiter or bartender asks you, What do you like? How hungry are you? What did you eat last? And then they'll make a recommendation from something that's on their menu. And then the third, and this is probably the least volumistic as far as opportunity, but the most opportunistic as far as outcome is what I call disruptive selling. And that's where you actually change the, the focus of the question altogether. It's, it's sort of beyond consultative, right? It's a vein of it, but it's, it's even more progressive. So basically, it's where you would sit down with a client prospect. They would describe to you in a similar consultative conversation, hey, here's a need, an express need that I am targeting. What amongst your solutions or your services will solve this need? And it's where you actually sit down and change the entire paradigm of the question itself and you, you refocus on an entirely new topic. So again, going back to the restaurant analogy, you go into a restaurant and you say that you've had a really crappy day and you know, you just want to eat something and kind of eat your emotions away. And the bartender asks you what's going on. And he says, you know what, actually, I think you need a stiff drink, or I think you need a cup of coffee. Let's start there. Right. So not even giving someone what they're asking for, but giving them or answering a question that they're not even asking you to answer. That's that third, that third concept. So what I would say is, is that certainly, you don't, your goal is not to try to complicate unnecessarily. If somebody has a direct sales opportunity, you know, you close that deal. Right. But the further along you get towards disruptive sales, I think the more opportunity is for that disruption and that ingratiation of a relationship where you're actually building that distance that we were talking about earlier, where you're saying, hey, I'm moving beyond consultative. Like. You know, not to tell you that your question is wrong, but your question is wrong. And here's, I think, the question you need to be focused on
0: instead. Yeah, no, I like it. It's rethinking and reframing, you know, what the way they're thinking about it. And I mean, that's completely in line with what I've seen. And even on this podcast, when I've interviewed founders that have scaled their business, when I say scale, got, you know, between the five, $10 million mark and up. And to a person they talk about, you know, we, we had really good sales. Until I, when I was selling into my network, right? So the longer I've been in business, the more people I know, the better I was able to sell. It's when I reach out, which I think ties directly. With you. I mean, that's direct sales, right? They know me. I, have a, they, I know they have a problem. I can sell it. Consultative. They have a problem, but they may not know you. You need to work through that and establish. It gets a little more difficult, but then the third is don't know you, don't know they have a problem necessarily, or don't know what that problem is. But you're right, that's where the greatest scale can come from is if you can cross that chasm, if, if you will. So, you know, such good advice. And again, I think thinking about it from the pick a lot of time founders are doing the sales themselves in the early days and they're not thinking about, you know, the 2.0 or 3.0, but it's really important to start thinking about that early because as long as the founders in the middle of the sales process, you're never going to scale your business. (laughs) There may be an exception in there, but I haven't seen it. I don't, I'm guessing you probably haven't seen it all that often if ever as well. So just have a plan. You got to get the sales early, but thinking about as as you're building, it makes, makes a great, a lot of sense. So awesome. So I do want to transition because you are investing in companies, you're advising companies. So let's talk about, you know, let's just see the the transition in the B2B startup space just in the last couple of years and where you're at now. And we were talking offline that I think we both agree this is one of the best times ever to to kind of start a business. So so let's just go back a couple years and, you know, to where we are today from an investment standpoint, or if I'm somebody thinking about starting a business, you know, why is now a good time?
1: Yeah, great question. So Couple reasons, and I'll talk more broadly, and then I'll talk at the end kind of more specifically around COVID and this moment that we're in. Rewind briefly just a little bit further back to 2008, 2009, 2010. The, think about the number of startups, B2B, B2C, everything in between that were generated, the number of unicorns that were created. I mean, this last 10 year period from let's just say 2010 to 2020 has been the best 10 year period as far as startups scalably being launched funded and then generating returns for investors. Investors know that we are ending kind of a 10 year bookend experience of some of the absolute best IRR returns uh, on on their portfolios. And so they are absolutely looking for opportunities to deploy capital again, because this asset class has taken on a whole new trajectory, this asset class being startups and and, and new ventures. And so you have the capital markets that are highly incentivized to want to compel and drive more money into these compounded by the fact of what we talked about earlier that this darwinistic moment this exigent moment that we find ourselves in now not by the way just you know 2008 2009 that was the Flash financial crisis right and then you had this propelling of all of these brand new startups the right investors are, are out there looking at this moment similarly and saying it's actually that maybe on a multiple effect, right? There's actually a multiple effect. So why do these moments, like why does the economy, why do challenges in the global economy, why do they compel entrepreneurship so much? Well, you think about it, there's always a strong correlation to the number of startups generated relative to the unemployment rate. Right? right. Because the more unemployment there is, the more people are now finding themselves with an opportunity to go out and and seek entrepreneurship as a legitimate pathway for generating their own income. Right. To actually make money, to actually put food on the table. Plus, you have people who were you know, entrenched in certain careers at big companies, highly capable entrepreneurs, but always had the comfort of that paycheck and that right. 401k and everything. And th- now they find themselves these really highly intelligent, highly capable people, you know, facing either being unemployed or just saying, hey, I only have one life to live, like, this is my opportunity. So you see these times, these moments where people look for new opportunities, they force themselves to kind of evolve. You know, and the numbers show that these moments will drive entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial attraction unlike any other. Just to throw some stats at you, I'm going I'm to read them just so I don't mess them up. From March to May of this year, in 2020, there were about 23 million jobs lost in the United States. Now, since then, and again, put aside politics for a second, I think reasonably we could say about 11 to 12 million of those jobs have been recouped so far. So again, politics aside, about half, depending on how you count it. From May to June, that period of time, there were 930,000 new businesses started, right? Right which is a slight increase from the same quarter 2019. So it's still kind of showing that improvement, right? So I think it went up, you know, whatever it was, 12 or 15%. But from July to September, and this is the really compelling stat from July to September, over 1.4 million startups were generated in the United States, 1.4 million startups, right? That blows away any any trajectory, any four-month period that we ever have on record. The, the most recent one, I think the highest one before that was 2018. I can't remember which quarter. And this is like 70% higher than the most recent kind of benchmark that was set wow. as far as number of new startups created. So to say that moments in time create compelling volumes of opportunities, because that's what we're talking about. I mean, in order to create a high volume of unicorn businesses, we need a high number of businesses started. We need a lot of people engaging in entrepreneurship. So it is a volume play at some point. And so these moments, the more startups that are being created, the more unicorns that will be created on their side, the more billion dollar valuations that are going to come out. That's just the way it works. That's supply and demand. So I think these moments and these statistics are telling us that there's a lot of people who are looking at this exigent moment, these, these businesses in flux, particularly on the B2B side and saying, hey, How do we solve new problems for them? How do we get to that that disruptive and consultative sales model? Because they're all facing challenges and they don't have the answers, but we can produce the answers for them. So long-winded way to say that the numbers prove out time and time again that these periods of time generate more volume of entrepreneurship than ever before. And what we're seeing right now is something that was even heavier in 2008, 2010, and even most recently in 2018. So this is the time to be excited. This is the time to embrace entrepreneurship and pursue those opportunities because here's the other thing and I'll just make one other comment. The opportunity cost is is really the the investment that an entrepreneur makes. Well, if you don't have a job or if the job market that you're facing is challenging, then the opportunity cost has never been lower, but the opportunity has also never been higher. So you have these dynamic shifts of the ceiling of opportunity getting higher for entrepreneurship and the opportunity cost or the floor for it being higher and higher. Yes. So both of them are, are graduating kind of in tandem versus kind of separating further.
0: Yeah, no, 100% agree, and that's staggering that stat. But I guess I'm I'm not surprised because you're right. The opportunity cost is huge, and there's you know a lot of the really good B2B founders came from a corporate role where they just couldn't get their problem solved. So like I can solve it, right? Which may, which makes sense, and just to even reinforce and take it more specifically to the B2B opportunity. I had the general partner from DNX Ventures on, and they had recently closed a $315 million fund that's investing in nothing but B2B early stage companies. So not only did they see the value in this space, but to close that many dollars and to close it during COVID (laughs) means that even the investor side understands where, where the opportunity is. And You know that's definitely one thing I encourage. You know these these startup founders is in the B two B world. We kind of talked about how these legacy, older companies. So if if, and just give perspective. So a B two B company started call it twenty years ago. It's probably even closer to fifteen. You know it was not built to sell in what I would call the modern day. It's right twenty twenty. It's not built. They're not driven on digital. A lot of it's you know very much siloed. There's not a cohesion between you know the the buyer enablement process and the customer enablement everything is more internally focused marketing sales blah 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 so look at those opportunities that are out there find some industries manufacturing is a good one distribution now amazon's gotten into it they've really pushed the digital transformation aspect but you know a lot of these companies aren't going to be able to pivot so if you can be more nimble more flexible build a different go to market model you're going to win just because of you know the current customers aren't going to care. They want their problem solved cheaper, faster, and you know they don't care if it's you've been doing business for 50 years or, or six months. So you know, just echoing and reinforcing from a different maybe angle of what you've been saying about the opportunity. I'm 100% with you on that.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's, it's an exciting
1: time. I mean, there's a lot going on. I think we all stared down the barrel of COVID and didn't know what the hell to expect. And personally, societally, everything going on. But the reality is separate from all of that for a moment, the right people, I think, have been focused on this as, as an opportunity from an economic standpoint and from a B2B standpoint. That, that business as we knew it before was going to change significantly. Think about going to an airport before 9 11 versus now in perpetuity after. And that type of impact, that type of physical change, process change, is happening not at one, but many, many, many industries right now. And so this is that opportunity to compel people to create problems or to create solutions that solve problems. For the market that you're talking about. And so identifying where those opportunities are is is kind of the only nuanced part at this point. And most people, like you said, in the B2B space, they're typically bringing their direct experience to bear and saying, God, I've I've lived this problem before. I've got a high degree of authenticity in creating that market efficacy. Now I'm going to go out and and actually pursue this opportunity uh, for more.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm the perfect case study for it because you know, it's been a couple of years in magic consulting, you know, screaming at the top of the mountain, man, you guys got to think differently. Digital transformation is coming. And it was really hard unless you got to the C-suite and specifically a CEO, maybe a CFO to say, hey, this is why it's going to change. And unless there was a major reason compelling them to change, it was going to be just, we're going to continue to optimize. So that's why I moved back into the startup space and say, hey, how do I help start? and create companies with the right platforms that can take advantage of the technologies and, and deliver it. So like I said, I think we have a shared enthusiasm for, for where the world's going to come. And, you know, definitely going to be some difficult times and we'll have to go through the transition, but yeah. So before I, I get to my final two questions, I want to be respectful of your time. Anything else that we we didn't cover in this that you think, you know, the audience should be thinking about either from a technology or a startup or Any other words of wisdom?
1: Oh my gosh, there's so much I could say. Here's the one thing I would say. Number one, everybody who's listening to this podcast is taking a great first step by listening to it. You know, Brett, you and I had the chance to serve on a uh, panel together. I was so impressed with what you were bringing to the table. Not to say like even I was impressed, but I find myself taking notes when you talk and I have quite a bit of experience in the startup space. So want to encourage your, your listeners to continue to invest in this podcast and take this journey with you because I can tell you we need more people like you in the startup ecosystem investing their time back into it. So I guess I would just say that as much as this has been valuable for you and, and hopefully for your audience like it's, it's valuable for me as well because we are at an intersection of opportunity and I'm excited to kind of have Other exciting people in the foxhole with me as, as we kind of explore this but but no I mean overall listen everybody remember that if you're start just starting out or if you're way into the venture right now. Remember that you are an investor as much as you are a founder, as much as you are an operator. Make sure you're thinking about your exit. Make sure you're thinking about where you want to take this venture. But you know, when it comes to technology, like I said earlier, defining that role early on and constantly revisiting that definition is, should be your true north. It should be your true north as far as product development. But if you keep that in mind and keep listening to great folks like Brett, I think you're going to be just fine. And, and I think you're going to, you're going to succeed.
0: I appreciate those are very kind words. And like I said, said, we haven't known each other a long time, but definitely had some shared beliefs and philosophies and, you know, used to be called the resistance. But now we're like like out in front saying, hey, man, there's opportunity out here if if you want to go get it. So I'm 100% with you. So in closing, one of the questions, the second to last, I always like to ask, what's next for you is we're, we're heading out of 2020 into 2021. Is there anything specific you're focused on? What's top of mind for you right now?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. You know, just a couple of quick things. So, you know, we've got a global workforce. We've got a couple hundred full time employees. So, you know, obviously just continue to be thoughtful and aware of, of the impact that COVID is playing on them. You know, both here domestically, but we also have a global team in the EU and India as well. So obviously, you know, a big part of my day is focused in thinking about the impact this is having on their lives. Because you know, really, we've built this venture as a family. We never took external capital. We just sort of grew it uh, by reinvesting in ourselves, and that includes reinvesting in our employees. So my focus is on them and making sure that they're taken care of. And then, as an extension of that, thinking of uh, the, the startups that we work with. You know, we treat our employees and our our clients as partners first, as we say. And so making sure that they they are continuing to be equipped from a mentorship, advice, and coaching standpoint for everything that they need. You know, we're, we're constantly taking on new investments on the Dashfire side. We're constantly bringing on new partners on the Farshore side and exploring new tech. But no, uh, for us, it's really focusing on helping people wrap up and capstone the year and start strategic planning for ourselves and for them going into 2021 and beyond. But no, that's, that's kind of the main focus for us at this time and just making sure that we're, we're squaring everything up as far as our employees and our other partners go.
0: No, that's awesome. I think it's so important. You're right. The time of uncertainty, all the changes, you know, get the, the people first aspect of it. I think it makes, makes a lot of sense. So, and we'll have to have you back maybe the Q1 or Q2 of next year, just to touch base post-election. Let's get an update on the, on the B2B state. And the final question I have for you, which again, I ask everybody is, you know, what is one thing you would highly recommend? And that could be, you know, either professional or, or personal.
1: Gosh, it's so hard. Uh, I am going to stick to one. I had so many when, when, when we were talking about this, you know, certainly what I would call developing keystone habits, focusing on mental health and physical health is important, but, but I'll say this because I think it's important for me physically, mentally, and professionally is Finding partners you can trust. You know, I can tell you this, some of you out there may be solo entrepreneurs, and and my hat's off to you. It's it's not an impossible pathway by any stretch, but I can tell you, speaking from my own experience as an entrepreneur and as an advisor to many entrepreneurs and startups, finding a counterpoint or counterparts that, that you can work with is critical. And you know, there are three criteria that I think you look for in a business partner. Somebody that you trust somebody that that sort of supplements and complements your skills, and then somebody that you like personally. And most of us, when we start a business relationship, we typically knowingly sacrifice one of those three things, most commonly the final one. You don't have to be best friends with someone in order to be an effective business partner with them, but most of us knowingly will tend to sacrifice that, or later we find out that we sacrificed one that we thought we weren't sacrificing. So what I can tell you is is that for those of you who are are serious about entrepreneurship, it's it's really about when there's an opportunity, even if they're not a co-founder or a true business partner find someone that you can rely upon. I know I've been really fortunate and really blessed with my business partner, Nick Begich. He's my best friend. We have cried together, prayed together. We have gone through the entire trajectory of emotionality together. We've celebrated together. But at the end of the day, you know, I've been blessed. I feel that I found somebody who checks all three of those boxes for me all these years later. And so what I would encourage all of you from a mental health, from a from a professional success standpoint, even if they're not your co-founder or your business partner, find someone that you can confide in. Find a mentor, talk to brand talk to me talk to someone who can be that for you even through proximity because it's going to make regardless of the industry regardless of technology regardless of where you're at from an operational standpoint it's going to make your degree of success and your degree of happiness much higher so find an effective partner find someone you can rely upon and find someone that can take this journey with you on some scale because it'll make the end reward all the richer
0: yeah, that's awesome. It's such a good advice. You know, I hadn't even thought about that, but you're right, but I do think we do sacrifice one of those three trusts, compliment or, or like. And you know, the one that I've, I'm really not wavering on anymore, maybe just because I'm older is the like aspect, right? I've got kind of the no asshole policies, right. <laughs> right? Your life's too short, you know, either work, personal, and if you just don't like them or they're not a good person, now is not the uh, get away sooner rather than later. I think in the I'd say the old days, you know, corporate world, you had to work with folks like that. It just, it was what it was. People were expected. But now I think we've been uh, awoken a little bit to say, you know, people is such an important piece of it. So I love that. I'm going to actually borrow that one from you. So I've got a couple of them. I'll give you full credit for Moss. of course. But... but- by all means, please. And, and thank you. And yeah, again, I, I agree with you. I can
1: suffer a fool, but I won't suffer an asshole. So that's, that's the value of entrepreneurship. So sometimes we've got to deal with people who maybe aren't as intelligent or don't see the same, see things the way we see them, but I won't suffer an asshole. I completely agree with you there, but yeah.
0: It's a perfect way to end. And so I'm sure there's going to be folks that want to follow up with you, learn more about you. What's the best place for, for people to connect with you?
1: Yeah. So LinkedIn's probably the best. Just JC Garrett, G-A-R-R-E-T-T. And then you can also feel free to email me anytime. I have an open email policy, just the letters JC at farshore.com. Obviously, if you're looking for support on the technology side, but just in general, I, I connect with mentor or mentor entrepreneurs that we never work with, offer advice and guidance, just kind of giving back into the community. So you don't have to have me signed up as your coach or contractor in order to ask for advice. But yeah, those would be the two best places to check out.
0: And I'll put those in the show notes so people have a quick link to it. But yeah, fantastic. JC, thank you so much for this. I enjoyed it. I think we could probably talk for another hour and a half. So maybe at some point there is going to be a part two. I'd love to do a part two where we maybe do nothing but talk about, you know, kind of the state of B2B and maybe after things settle down at the start of the year, we'll revisit that. 100%,
1: 100%, Brett. I'd love to be on. Thank you for having me. And seriously, Brett, thank you for everything that you're doing for the startup community. It's adding a tremendous amount of value, this platform, and everything else that you're doing. So please keep it up. And everybody who's listening, keep tuning in. Tell your friends about this podcast. I can tell you it's something that, of all the podcasts I listen to, it's something that I actively listen to. So
0: please, please, please promote, rate it, do everything else. Man, I really appreciate that. And that was unpaid, too, by the way. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) yeah, I'm sure the check's in the mail. That's awesome. Appreciate it. Have a great rest of your day, and we'll catch up with you soon.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Brett. Take care.